Prophecy in the nation of Israel. Prophecy in the nation of Israel is the topic. When Pastor Scott touched base with me late last week, he said, try to keep do like you did before. Try to keep it somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. <laughs> but don't bother with judges. And I said, I can do that. I'd be, be happy to leave that to your, uh, your discretion. Prophecy in the nation of Israel. You may be thinking, how in the world are we going to cover five or six thousand years of history in 45 to 50 minutes? Well, uh, it's going to be quick. <laughs> we'll be at some parts, we'll be at cruising altitude, then we'll drop down to treetop level, and then sometimes in between that. <clears throat> the thing I would like to leave with you and to focus on, instead of a treatise on history, which I love, I'm a, a historical fiction published author, so history has always been dear to me, but more than facts and figures and dates, <clears throat> I want us to see how God's care and mercy and grace is shown for his people, the Israeli people and by extension, us as wild olive branches grafted in to the vine. Question could be, is this study important? I would suggest yes, and I hope we'll be able to see why. And always, always, when I've had the privilege and the opportunity, and actually the honor to speak God's Word. I want to encourage you. Uh, some of you already got your notepads out, so that's good. I hope you have a full pen. <laughs> but I would encourage you to study on your own, to take notes, to study, jot down the Scriptures. We have a bunch of, bunch of Scriptures tonight. We may not be able to read all of them, but I'll certainly give you the uh, references. It's like I said one other time. Remember when you were in school, if you came to class, if you listened to the teacher, the professor, and left, you gained a little bit of knowledge and information. But where you really get the benefit is when you dive into the scriptures. <clears throat> do the homework, read the material, and study on your own. Because God is always, always, always going to show you something. I don't care how many dozens or hundreds of times that you have read a particular passage. He's going to show you something new. Where did that come from? That verse was not in there before. <laughs> Who slipped that in? 
but he's going to speak to you. So do that. Let's go back to almost the beginning. Genesis chapter 12, the first couple of verses, the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed. Now the Lord said to Abram in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you. Now pay it, listen to verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at that first phrase of verse 2 where he said, and I will make of you a great nation. Hold that thought. Actually, this week, Sunday, um, in our community group, um, those of you that might be uh, watching, uh, that's our Sunday school group. I invited, uh, I have a Zoom class, a men's Zoom class on Wednesday mornings I attend, and I invited them to come or dial in or tune in. But uh, in our community group, we've this quarter started a new session of material in our uh, community group uh, 12 that I tag team teach. And the overall topic is Bible characters. It's divided into seven sections of six lessons each, which has a video in it. And the first series of characters are the patriarchs, one of which was Abram, Abraham, that we studied last week. That name means exalted father, Abraham, father of multitudes. You've read that many times, I'm sure. God confirmed his promises many times to Abraham. In chapter 12, chapter 13, twice, in chapter 15, 17, and 22. So in case Abraham didn't catch it, he repeated it several times. And then for good measure, he repeated the promises to Isaac in Genesis 26, to Jacob again, Genesis 28, and to Joseph. So God was still repeating and reminding and showing and telling, hey, I'm your God, you're going to be a nation. Of course, we know the story of Joseph. We had a lesson on that Wednesday night several months ago. The Israelites were enslaved and they got into a problem. 
in Exodus 1.8, the new Pharaoh did not know who Joseph was. Bad, bad stuff happened to the Israelites at that point. God raised up Moses eventually. Exodus 7 to 11 recounts that. And enduring the plagues, time after time, finally, Pharaoh said, okay, get out of here, leave. About 1446 B.C., roughly, if your study Bibles have dates that slip a couple of years, that's, that's probably good, okay, because sometimes it's difficult to pin down. But they were going to the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, which should have taken maybe 10, 11, 12 days if they had gone from point A to point B. How long did it take them? 40 years. In that time, in Exodus 20, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9, was the Mosaic Covenant. He said, For you are a people holy to God, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. <coughs> a little bit later, 1406 approximately, Moses summarized the law for him that's recounted in Deuteronomy 5 to 27. And he gave them specific warnings. He gave them specific warnings. He told them, follow me. I keep my covenant. You need to keep your covenant. And in chapter 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy, the Lord gave them very specific warnings if they did not, did not do that. He would bring curses on them if they did not obey. Crops would fail. Cattle would not be reproduced. They would be barren. Children would be rebellious. He would bring diseases, 
plagues, chronic illnesses. Sound familiar? <laughs> Listen to verse 64 of chapter 28. This is the, the kicker. He says, if all of that doesn't get your attention, you're going to be exiled. Moreover, in verse 20, uh, 64 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. From one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. We remember they were supposed to destroy the Canaanites. They didn't. They kept the best of the cattle. They started to intermarry. All sorts of issues came out of that. We come up to the period of the judges that Pastor Scott studied with us on Wednesday night. There were 16 of those judges, if you go through and count them, for the next 400 or so years. One of the more famous judges was Samuel. He warned the people about having a king. Remember the, the when Pastor Scott's lesson? <coughs> what was the phrase that kept being repeated over and over in the scriptures about the people? In the judges. They did what they saw was right in their own eyes. And they still do. Yep. Then they started the clamor for what? A king. 1 Samuel 10, 8-22, we want to be like other nations. We don't want to be different. Look at their king. Look at their king. Look at that one. We want a king. Samuel said, if you do that, you're going to have problems. And he enumerated all of what those were. The people said, you're an old guy. We don't want to follow what you're saying. We don't care. We want a king. You can almost hear the chant. We want a king. We want a king. Samuel was hurt, as you might expect. He was discouraged. He was frustrated. And God said, don't worry about it, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49 that the people would have a king, but they just jumped the time frame. And of course, who did they pick? Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. And we know the story about him. One of, the, one of my favorite stories about Saul 
that basically shows he he was good up to a point and then he kind of fell apart remember when Samuel I think it was chapter 10 the first Samuel he said go and wait for me seven days and then I'll come and I'll show you what to do well Samuel and the, or Saul and the people went well day one day two day three well here it is day seven where's Samuel he's not here well I guess we better have a sacrifice so Saul stepped out of his role of king into the priesthood which he should not have done. And just about the time, they didn't have matches, I don't think. He didn't have a Zippo or a Bic lighter. But as soon as he got the sacrificial fire started, who walked around the corner? Samuel. And basically, he cleaned his clock over that little episode. In 1010 BC, David became king. After him was Solomon. A little bit later, Jeroboam <coughs> rebelled, and the people rebelled with him and followed him. He united the ten northern tribes into what was called Israel, and the capital was Samaria. Rehoboam united the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, into the land of Judah, and Jerusalem was its capital. Well, there was the divided kingdom. In 722, the Assyrians conquered the southern kingdom, and that was the beginning of the dispersion, a scattering of people that Moses told them back in Deuteronomy that would happen if they did not follow him. Joel and Isaiah and Jeremiah all prophesied against them. The Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 36 recounts that. That led to the Babylonian captivity. 608 to 538. BC. Jumping forward a little bit, we come to the Maccabean Revolution or Revolt, 167 to 160 BC. Uh, what happened there? There was a Greek official that tried to force a priest, Mattathias, to make a sacrifice to a pagan god. And he and the people said, no, we're not going to do that. So the people killed that Greek official. And then the revolt started against the oppression that they were enduring. The Maccabees uh, were a uh, uh, the sect, if you will, of the Jewish people, in their name transliterated into the English means hammer, which is interesting. Antiochus IV 
pushed back against all of that. And Matthias and his five sons led that rebellion. Some of them lost their lives. But again, they were under this oppressive rule and they were trying to push back to the best that they could. 63 BC, Judah became a Roman protectorate, which means it was essentially protected, but not terribly <coughs> under control of Rome. In 6 AD, it became a province and it was under their control and basically under Rome's thumb. Well, that didn't set very good. In 66, there was another revolt that lasted several years. <clears throat> and then in 70 AD, Emperor Nero in Rome said, okay, enough of this business. So he sent his son Vespasian and the army down there to the to the uh, Palestine area to put the revolt down. The only problem was Nero died. Vespasian went back to Rome to become the next emperor. He sent his son Titus, the Roman general, and his army down and crushed the revolt again. And what did they destroy, among other things? The temple. The temple. 132 to 136, the Bar Kokhba revolt, led by Simon Bar Kokhba. The Emperor Hadrian, another emperor. Now he was, as we would say <coughs> politely, he was a pretty mean rascal. <laughs> Nero, Vespasian, Titus, they scrunched things pretty good. Hadrian came in and said, all right, enough is enough of this Mickey Mouse business. He brought the army in, nearly 600,000 of the Israelites were killed <clears throat> and nearly a thousand cities and towns were just leveled, wiped off the map. <clears throat> the dispersion naturally continued. A lot of them settled <clears throat> in the Ottoman Empire, and I don't have a pull-down map, but in the back of your study Bibles or other Bibles, the Ottoman Empire generally was southeastern Europe, western Asia, and northern Africa. That kind of half circle around the Mediterranean. The persecution against the Jewish people continued to increase severely during this time. This was around when people were calling the Jewish people the Christ killers, the Christ killers. And then in the first, second, third, century AD, a belief, a movement came about. It's called several names, <clears throat> replacement theology, and sometimes it's called supersessionism, supersessionism. 
And that even pops up today. Essentially, it goes something like this. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. They rebelled. They wouldn't follow him. So God wiped his hands of them, let them be destroyed, dispersed, and because of that, supersession means something that is replaced by something else. So the something else, the church replaced the Jewish people. There's nothing in here to support that, but many people still think about it. Moving up to the Middle Ages, moving to the Middle Ages, we come to the great reformer who was Martin Luther. He preached, taught against the practices of the Catholic Church, uh, the indulgences, um, uh, the purgatory, and other things. He believed faith alone, not faith by works, but faith alone was what saved you. That's on the positive side of his ledger. There is a very dark side to Martin Luther that a lot of people don't realize. He wrote in 1543 a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. On the Jews and Their Lies. He was a very violent hardcore anti-Seminist person. He was violently opposed to the Jewish people. <coughs> he called them, quote, miserable and accursed people, stupid fools, thieves and robbers, lazy rogues, unquote. Now, Besides just words, he had some other ideas. His, listen to his ideas for his solution to the Jewish problem, quote, unquote. He said the synagogue, their synagogues and schools should be burned. He said their houses should be destroyed. Their Talmudic writings should be destroyed. Rabbis should be forbidden to teach. Their money should be confiscated. And they should be compelled to force labor. Keep that in mind for a few minutes. <coughs> Fast forward to the 19th century, we run across a fellow named Theodore Herzl, Theodore Herzl, spelled this way. He was not 
a rabbi, he was not a prophet, he was not a theologian. He was a uh, Viennese Jewish journalist. And he covered a very famous trial in France, the Dreyfus trial. <clears throat> but in 1896, he wrote a booklet called The Jewish State, The Jewish State, Der Judenstaat in German. And in that, he advocated a return of the Jewish people to their homeland. And that was one of the first times that phrase, homeland, had been used. And more than that, not only did he advocate a homeland for them, he said it would occur sometime within the next 50 years. So he wrote that in 1896. Fast forward a few more years, we come to World War I, 1914, 1918. America got into the war in 1917. Germany, of course, lost the war. Their Turkish allies, of course, lost, and they lost the Ottoman Empire, which was broken up. 1917, <clears throat> Arthur Balfour, who was the British Foreign Secretary, wrote the Balfour Declaration, and that advocated and favored the establishment of Palestine as, their, as the Jewish homeland. That's 1917. So essentially, after the war was over, the British were in charge kind of default, if you will, of the Palestine area. 1922, unfortunately, and the maps show way bigger territory that was a Jewish area than it is now. 1922, what did the British do? Slice the eastern two-thirds off and give that to the Arabs. Why, you ask? Three letters. Well, with the defeat of Germany, there was tremendous unrest there. Their economy was the pits, the German mark was devalued. It took billions and billions of marks to buy a cup of coffee, practically. And the German people felt like they had been stabbed in the back by their defeat during the war. And who would be the likely suspect for that? The Jewish people. In the early 20s, one of the German corporals 
as uh, Sir Winston Churchill liked to call him, started to rise to power. That was Adolf Hitler. In 1923, it was, he and his followers tried in uh, Austria to take over the government, the famous Beer Hall pushed. So he was jailed in Landisburg Prison outside Berlin. While he was there, one of his followers, um, Rudolf Hess, who was his secretary, took down the book that Hitler dictated to him, <coughs> Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Naturally, he wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, book, line, and sinker, swallowed what Martin Luther advocated to take care to take care of the quote Jewish problem. Listen to what he said. Martin Luther war die größte Ermutigung meines Lebens. Sorry. <laughs> Carried away. Martin Luther has been the greatest encouragement of my life. Luther was a great man. He was a giant. With one blow, he heralded the coming of the new dawn and the new age. He saw clearly that the Jews needed to be destroyed. And we are only beginning to see that we need to carry the work on. He made another statement. I believe today I am acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God. Think of that. As I announce the most important work that Christians could undertake. Und das heißt gegen die Juden zu sein und sie ein für allemal zu loswerden. And that is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once and for all. Well, as we know from history, after the war and clandestine reports that creeped out, he nearly succeeded, the Holocaust. By the way, I saw a study the other day that is not surprising but disturbing. About a third to a half of young people, millennials, they don't know anything about the Holocaust. It's, you mentioned that and all you get is a blank face. Jeremiah 16, 14, 15 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt? But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where we had driven them, for I will bring them back 
to their own land that I gave to their fathers. God always says what He means, means what He says, and His promises are sure. Amen. Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8 basically repeats those same verses that chapter 16 had. Isaiah 11, <coughs> 10 to 11 says, In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring them back, the remnant of his people. And that word remnant, there's all somewhere, all through history, despite the persecution, despite the killing, despite the destruction, there has always been a small remnant, a small handful of God's people that were there. To bring them back, a remnant of his people, to those who remain in Assyria, in northern Egypt, in southern Egypt, Ethiopia, and Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and Syria, and the distant coastlands. Listen to Isaiah 66. Talk about prophecy. 66 verses 6 and 8. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. There is a big passage that I have, and there is not time to read it, but jot it down, Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses of that chapter. That's the famous passage that talks about the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel saw. And he saw them rattling and coming together and the sinews and the flesh came on it and they stood up and he thought, who is that? What's that? And God said in verse 11, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Scripture interprets scripture. So after the war, uh, World War II, Britain still had charge of the Palestine area. But after about 20 odd plus years, they were done with it. The Arab, the Jewish people were fighting, there was turmoil. They said, we're done. At that time, Britain was not the power that it was. Their empire was shrinking, their military was shrinking. Their influence had collapsed tremendously after the war. So, 
What did they do? They dumped it in the lap of the newly born, if you will, United Nations. And the UN voted to partition Palestine into the Arab and Jewish states. And there's not time to get into it, but it's interesting. <coughs> Initially, Russia was against that, but amazingly, they turned around and voted for that. Of course, there was a backhanded uh, ulterior motive. They wanted to get the British people, troops, out of there so they could have free reign with oil. May 14th, 1948, in Independence Hall in Tel Aviv, David Ben-Gurion read the Israeli Declaration of Independence, forming the nation of Israel. That declaration was set to take effect on May 14th at 6 p.m. Washington time, which was Eastern time. 11 minutes later, President Truman signed the document recognizing the nation of Israel. And Truman has dozens of statues erected in his honor in Israel. He is very, very respected and revered over there. It was a tremendous behind-the-scenes battle before he recognized Israel. Some of his advisors were saying, yeah, go ahead and do it. Some said, no, don't do it. One of the key people that was touting him to not recognize the new nation was none other than general, former general, former five-star general, George Marshall, author of the Marshall Plan. At that time, he was Truman's Secretary of State. Truman respected Marshall, almost worshiped the man. He was the architect of the Allied victory during the war. So he was highly, highly respected. But Truman was undecided. So two days before that, May 11th, he called a meeting at the Oval Office. And he brought in some people and said, okay, here's our situation. What about it? And one of the people who was on Truman's staff, who had been during the war, his naval attache, Clark Clifford, who later went on to be a tremendous, highly placed Washington lawyer, was there. And so Truman said, Clark, would you give your views on the matter? And he did. In the other corner was General Marshall. I think his Marshall's wife was the only person that was allowed to call him George. Everybody from top to bottom <coughs> called him General Marshall. One time during the war, there was a conference with FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, 
and several of the generals and uh, admirals from the um, chiefs of staff were in a meeting and they were discussing some strategy. And FDR being the proverbial politician, sorry Richard, your, your head is in a crick there. I'm hiding, I'm not trying to hide from you. Um, FDR was a consummate politician. So he rears back and says, well, George, we've heard all the arguments here. What do you think about this? They said Marshall swelled up and looked at Roosevelt and said, Mr. President, it's General Marshall. <laughs> Talk about a rebuke. But anyway, that was the guy that was at the meeting in Roosevelt in uh, Truman's office, the Oval Office. Clark Clifford gave his views, and as he sat down, Marshall said, "What's he doing here? He's a political hack. This is a diplomatic discussion." Truman looked at him and smiled and said, General, he's here because I asked him to. Marshall sat down. <laughs> so then Marshall got up and he gave his position. In fact, he went so far as to say, and there's a dozen or so witnesses, after he got done, he said, I disagree with this. And in fact, Mr. President, <clears throat> come November 1948, I will not be voting for you. I will vote for your opponent, who turned out to be Tom Dewey. They said the air went out of the room. You could hear a proverbial pin drop. President Truman said, well, fellas, I think we've pretty much exhausted ourselves. Let's get a good night and sleep on it. So that's what they did. The next morning, the 13th, May, General Marshall, Secretary Marshall called Truman and said, Mr. President, I thought about it and I still hold my position. I don't believe it's the right thing to do, but it's your decision. I will support you and I will not say one word in public or private if you decide otherwise. <clears throat> and so Truman recognized Israel the next day. Now, <clears throat> if you flip back to, oh, where was it? Isaiah 66, before she travailed, she brought forth, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, just for the record, I have not been pregnant. I don't know about childbirth from myself. My late wife, I do. There was pain during that, and then afterward, our daughter, our older daughter and younger daughter were born. But there was pain afterward. 
the birth of Israel happened, and then the birth pains began. The next day, what happened, May 15, 1948. Israel was attacked. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen attacked. A number of key figures at that time and later in Israeli history were in that war that lasted several years. Uh, David Ben-Gurion that read the Declaration, he was their first prime minister. Yitzhak Rabin, he was the fifth prime minister later years. Moshe Dayan, he was the defense minister in the 60s, 1967 uh, war. The 67 so-called Six-Day War, Israel fought against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. trying, the Israeli army was trying to get inside the city, the old city of Jerusalem. And along here by the eastern gate, they were pinned down with gunfire, artillery fire, rocket fire. And one of the soldiers said to the captain in charge of this group, he said, well, Let's blow this gate and get inside. And the captain said, we can't do that. It'll violate scripture. Then, what? We're under fire. We're getting our helmet shot off. <laughs> <laughs> so what did they do? They fought their way around kind of the northeast side and got inside the old city by the sheep gate to regain the city. They made their way to the Wailing Wall, a very sacred place. The soldiers, the officers from high to low were cheering and weeping, rejoicing, shouting, And there was a little fellow with kind of black horn-rimmed glasses, kind of looked like a bookkeeper or professor, was making his way through the crowd. In one hand, he had a Torah. In the other hand, he had a shofar, a ram's horn. He made his way to kind of a pile of rocks where he could climb up on and be seen. And he blew the shofar and raised his hand. All of the soldiers from top to bottom fell silent and they looked at him. He turned and the sun <clears throat> kind of glinted off two stars on his shoulder boards. He was a major general. 
Shalomo Gorin was his name, chief rabbi of the Israeli army, later chief rabbi of Israel. And he said, we have taken the city of God. We are entering the Messianic era for the Jewish people. In 73, October 73, there was the Yom Kippur. And there have been many skirmishes, wars since then. You practically can't keep track of them almost. So as takeaways for tonight, what does the fulfilled prophecy regarding the nation of Israel mean for us in this day and age? It shows that the Bible is of supernatural origin, as if we question that. Some people do, of course. God caused it to be written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It shows God is faithful, faithful full of faith to his promises that he makes. It shows God's grace and mercy. And it also shows that we are living in the season, the season of the Lord's return. Matthew 24 says that will come as a thief in the night, not to us as believers that know about it, but to the world, it'll be a mystery to them. And Jesus reminded his disciples that only God knows when that will happen. I remember back in 1988, there was a fellow, name escapes me, but he wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, as soon as I heard that, I knew that was um, not going to happen. <clears throat> so what did he do the next year? <laughs> Wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Can Return, 1989. Well, that didn't happen, so he figured well enough and forgot that, left that alone. Some of the signs of the times, the signs of nature, Earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, famines. Some people say, well, we've always had that. Yeah, but they're increasing in strength and frequency. Signs of nature or signs of um, society. God said before the flood that people were doing what was right in their own eyes, just like the days of Noah. The spiritual signs for today, the false Christ, false prophets, persecution of Christians. But, but in spite of all the negatives, there is a renewed interest in a lot of people of Bible prophecy. And I always tell folks, Bible prophecy is a tremendous um, evangelistic tool. Signs of technology, communication, transportation, world politics, the existence of Israel has been a thorn since they were 
existence. The nations want to destroy Israel. <coughs> and the sign of Israel itself, the end time prophecy, focuses on Israel. All of these different things, what is significant about all of that is the convergence of all that at the same time. That's happening right now as we sit here. God means what He says. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Numbers 23 God is met, not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will not make it good? Jesus doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. James tells us in chapter 1, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. <clears throat> God says what He means. He means what He says. And we can rest assured of that. As I said a couple months ago when I filled in for pastor, I told that story about the missionary. And he was trying to describe in a different language what the word trust meant. And he came up with the phrase in that language to put your whole weight on it. We can put our whole weight on God's Word. Amen. It's going to come to pass. Amen. It's going to come to pass. 